0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Ubaldi Reports. Now, speaking in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, just hours after a stunning sweep of all primaries on Tuesday, Donald Trump gave his much-touted foreign policy vision. Now, he repeatedly stated he would place America first. He kept saying that moniker over and over again. It's America first. Now, historians trace this back to another time when, America said America first. That was right before America entered World War II. And this was the period of American isolationism after World War I. We decided to say, hey, we're going to take care of our own stuff, leave Europe alone. So uh, Donald Trump keep, again, reiterating that concept, America first. Now, he stated throughout the whole address, especially at the beginning, that American foreign policy veered off course after the end of the Cold War. He talked about how American foreign policy from both Republicans and Democrats had focus, had vision, and helped end the Cold War to a victory for the United States and the uh, the world, for that matter. But he basically said American foreign policy has veered off course. And he mentioned the mistakes of Iraq to Egypt to Libya— And he really pushed the blame on President Obama when he mentioned his line in the sand. And he said each of these actions have helped overthrow and push the region into chaos and gave ISIS the space it needs to grow and prosper. Now, he did criticize for most of the speech uh, President Obama and Hillary Clinton of being one and the same. But when he talked about our mistake going into Iraq, he put the blame solely at the square feet of President George Bush. Now, he stated, it all began with the dangerous idea that we could make Western democracies out of the countries that had no experience or interest in becoming a Western democracy. Now, and he keep going back to this moniker that U.S. foreign policy has been a a disaster. Now, as I was listening to the speech, I was listening to a vision of where Donald Trump is going to take the United States, because whoever becomes president, whether it's Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, or whoever, is like General James Mattis, the former CENTCOM commander, said, the world's a mess, and whoever takes office, Republican or Democrat, is going to have to face some challenging decisions. So when the president, I mean, excuse me, when Barack Obama, Barack, when Donald Trump keeps mentioning U.S. foreign policy disaster, and he said. And he just kept feeding into that. We're going to make America first. But as I was listening to his address, I say I got the impression that one Donald Trump doesn't really understand the unique role the U.S. plays in global affairs. He seemed to be that he was wandering. He would focus on certain areas, and then he would wander, or he would contradict himself. On this, like he doesn't want to get into nation building. He kept repeating that we're not going to do nation building, but he also wants to to strengthen stability. Well, how are you going to build stability unless the United States is involved in the region? Now, to our allies throughout Europe and Asia, they see American foreign policy as wandering. I would agree with them on that, but they also really listen to a Donald Trump foreign policy vision. And it sounded like to them that United States is going to be disengaged and it's going to revert back to isolationism. Now, Donald Trump or others could say that's not what he meant, but you can't go by what he means. You've got to go by how our allies see um, a Trump foreign policy. They have seen the disengagement by the United States under Barack Obama. But this foreign policy addressed by Donald Trump kind of goes into that. And our allies are seeing us abandoning our alliances with Europe and Korea that's been the hallmark of U.S. foreign policy since the end of the Second World War. And many of our allies see, what's the role, what's the United States going to be? Are they going to be disengaged or not? I mean, it, it has people worrying about what a Trump foreign policy would mean. Now, in his speech, he identified five main weaknesses in our foreign policy. The first one being, our resources are overextended. He mentioned our weakened American military. Now, having served in the the Marines for 30 years, I can see where his point was going with that. And I have some questions about how our resources are spent as it regards to the Department of Defense. I've seen wasteful spending. Donald Trump mentions that. We have a massive 19. This is when he added into the economy as well. We have almost a twenty trillion dollar debt. Most of that was been run up by Barack Obama. I know George Bush was no steward of the the economy, but he makes Barack Obama look. I mean, makes Barack Obama makes George Bush look like a a fiscal conservative or a fiscal steward of the economy. So, and then we have low growth. I mean, really low growth. The uh, GDP came out by the U.S. Commerce Department. We reached. 0.5%. 0.5 percent, for the first time in history, Barack Obama or the president Barack Obama would have but presided over the only time that the economy and any in his term has not been over three percent growth. So, and then we've got the huge uh, trade deficit and open borders, but he never mentions what he's where he would cut. How would we cut wasteful spending? Now. When you look at the national debt, and what makes America great is our economy. And every economist would say the, the, the biggest majority of the debt is related to the entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and interest on the debt. So he never he never addresses that. Now, I know this was a foreign policy address, so we'll leave that alone, but let's go to the military. What resources would he spend on? What weapons system would he— or? Um, he cancel. We're seeing the F-35, one of the most expensive weapons system in history. He never addresses that particular weapon. So where would he reduce spending? We've always hear political leaders talk about wasteful spending, but they never address what is that wasteful spending. And the biggest thing he mentioned in this, in the second point, is our allies are not paying their fair share. And he states our allies must contribute toward the financial, political, and human cost of our tremendous security burden. But many of them are simply not doing so. They look at the United States as weak and forgiving and feel no obligation to honor their agreement with us. Now he continues, In NATO, for instance, only four of the 28 other member countries besides America are spending the minimum required 2% of GDP on defense. Now, this is the, that's a valid point. That's always been a problem that we need the Europeans to step up to the plate and spend more on their, their common defense. But the question becomes is we have new membership in NATO. You have the Eastern European countries. You have the Baltics. Now, you can't really compare our military to Europe. The United States has global, a global reach. And we have global responsibilities. Now, some can question that global responsibility. Why us? Why should we do this? Now, the question I would, ref- um, would remark to them is, if we aren't on the global scene, who is going to take our place? We're seeing that happen in the Middle East. A disengagement by the United States has allowed Iran to expand. A disengagement by the United States in Europe has allowed Russia to be back on the international stage. Look what's going on in Asia with China expanding in the South China Sea. So a disengagement by the United States, other regional powers filled the vacuum, and they have different strategic interests. Now, some could say we can't be the global policeman, but every time the United States in the last 100 years pulled back, chaos ruled. After World War I, we disengaged. World War II. After the end of uh, World War II, we decided to reduce substantially, set the stage for Korea. And then we saw what happened after the end of the the Cold War. So we have global responsibilities, and it's far better to be engaged than disengaged. Now, Donald Trump mentions we have spent trillions of dollars over time on planes, missiles, ships, equipment building up our military to provide a strong defense for Europe and Asia the countries we are defending must pay for the cost of this defense and if not the us must be prepared to let these countries defend themselves let's look at asia for for that matter it's disingenuous or disingenuous of donald trump to say they're not paying their fair share when japan spends billions for our uh, military to be housed on its territory. Same with South Korea. The last time the United States pulled out of South Korea was right before the Korean War, and we saw what happened there. North Korea invaded South Korea. I'm not saying that's going to happen this time, but any disengagement by the United States signals that we're pulling out of the region and China is going to fill the vacuum. And that has a lot of our Asian allies worried. Even though we're worried under Barack Obama, what would they do under Donald Trump who makes these statements? Now, Thomas Wright at the Brookings Institute stated, Trump is asking the allies to pay for significant share of the U.S. defense budget that enables the United States to be military present in Europe and Asia. This would run into hundreds of billions of dollars per year. Trump's demand is based on his stated belief that the United States has no self-interest in being in Asia or Europe. Needless to say, America's allies can't write a check to cover significant share of the U.S. defense budget, which means he will then have an excuse to pull out of the alliances. And that's a good, that's a valid point. Does he really believe that our allies aren't doing their fair share? I served in Iraq and I served in Afghanistan, especially when I was in Afghanistan. I saw many of the European allies serving alongside us first when I was in Afghanistan in 2002 and then definitely in 2012. Even when I was in Iraq, there was the British the Australians, a lot of our traditional allies were serving there alongside of us, and a lot of them lost troops. I was in Afghanistan in 2012, and one of the Estonian soldiers was wounded pretty severely in, a suicide, I mean, um, in an improvised explosive device, so he lost his legs. So to say that country isn't doing its fair share, that's, that's, it's, it makes a tough sell to these countries. And then these allies... Let's look at NATO in Europe. If he said NATO needs to do its fair share, how do the Eastern European countries feel if the United States pulls out of the NATO alliance? What about the Baltic states? We're seeing a resurgent Russia. Russia loves this if the United States pulls out uh, fractures that relationship. They've always questioned NATO and they've always had a fear of the West. So what what our friends think? And then the pre, um Donald Trump's mentioned our friends are beginning to think they can't depend on us. Now, he also mentioned the president, we have a president who dislikes our friends and bows to our enemy. Now, there's some truth to this part. I'm, I'm not sure, even with Bill Clinton, he had a good relationship with um, a lot of our, our, our traditional allies, especially in England. Um, Barack Obama is a different kind of president. I think he sees the world differently than all Democrat or Republican uh, presidents before him. Now, in a Jeffrey Goldberg article in The Atlantic, he kind of brings up that he looks at the United States as the problem. If we just disengage, he will allow other regional powers to fill the vacuum. And he said that also in December of 2004 with an NPR interview. He wouldn't want or wouldn't have a problem having Iran As a regional power. Now, this goes counter to our traditional allies in the region. Now, just because we pull back and other powers come in doesn't mean that they're going to be doing what is right. They're going to be doing with their own self interest. The world has always benefited from an engaged America. Anytime the United States disengaged from the world, trouble always followed. So we got to be careful on that. Now, also, he mentioned Iran. This is especially on this one. Iran can't be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. and Under a Trump administration, will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. The question I would ask them is, how? We just signed the nuclear agreement with Iran. Now, the sanctions are gone. We're giving $150 billion to Iran. How is he? And he mentions that we're going to get rid of this. was the worst deal ever. And it is a very bad deal. But the question is, how would he stop Iran from having a nuclear weapon? The Europeans, the Chinese, and the Russians, especially England, France, um, Russia, and China, they're part of the Security Council. They're not going to institute sanctions back on Iran. So, my question is how would a Trump administration stop Iran from having a nuclear weapon? This nuclear deal just pushed off the timeline about another 10 years. After that 10 year, the deal's done. Iran can go back and develop a nuclear weapon. So how would a Trump administration prevent Iran from doing this? What would he do differently? Would he use military force? Would he use sanctions? How would he do things to prevent Iran from having that nuclear device? This hasn't been – you didn't mention that. Now also um, Donald Trump mentioned in his speech President Obama – has, been, has not been a friend to Israel. He has treated Iran with tender love and care and made it a great power in the Middle East, all at the expense of Israel. Our other allies in the region and critically the United States. Now, Republicans have been beating up the President Obama on this because he's really had a very, very terse, very tough relationship with Israel. They really don't see eye to eye. He really has problems with our Arab, um, our Arab allies. So there is some truth to this. But Donald Trump needs to explain what would you do differently in the Middle East, because you talk about having the the Arab allies do more, but you didn't say what. What would you do if they don't? Do we? Do you disengage and allow Iran to be a big player beyond Iran trying to get nuclear weapons? Iran is involved in Yemen, definitely involved in Iraq, and Iraq looks like it's going to implode anytime soon. Joseph Biden's going back there. Then you have Syria in Lebanon with Hezbollah and Hamas in the West Bank and Gaza Strip so what would he do differently now also he mentions our rivals no longer respect us now he talks about Cuba China and other countries so what would he do differently how would he be how would he gain the res, that respect of our rivals with the United States is it a peace to strength what would he do differently and This is the one thing that he said is the fifth problem that the United States has. America no longer has a clear understanding of our foreign policy goals. And he listed the many areas. He listed Iraq, Syria, Libya. The one thing he never mentions, he never mentions Ukraine. He never mentions the Crimea, never mentions China and the South China Sea. And he does mention radical Islam. He never says what he would do to stop radical Islam. But then he's, he goes and this will change when I become president. And he laid out a couple things that would change when he becomes president. First of all, he stated, to all our friends and allies, I say America is going to be strong again. America is going to be a reliable friend and ally again but remember earlier he said if they don't do their part we're pulling out so it kind of is an incoherent part of this and he stated again we're going to finally have a coherent foreign policy based on american interest and the shared interest of our allies but initially he said america first america first so that's an incoherent what does he mean by the shared interests of our allies america always led these Um, alliances. And we listened to our allies, but we were always the one that set the agenda. That's the one thing was missed in the Obama um, foreign policy. He just kind of showed up. We always set the agenda. So what would Trump um, talk about? And then he mentions, we are getting out of the nation building business, instead focusing on creating stability in the world. Now, He focuses on nation building as it relates to Iraq and Afghanistan and the debacle we had in Libya. The one thing he didn't mention is when he says creating stability, we're going to focus on creating stability in the world. Well, how do you create stability unless you're engaged in the region? So that's a contradictory term. I mean, what does he mean by creating stability in the world and how would he do that? And this, to me, misrepresents What happened in Iraq and Afghanistan? Everybody's focused on how we got in. Nobody focuses. The United States learned the wrong lesson from our Germany and Japan. I know they have different countries. They understood democracy. They had the different peoples were different. But the one thing that was similar, there was one person that led the, the way in both countries. That was General Lucius Clay in Germany, General Douglas MacArthur in Japan, and later General Ridgway. They understood where they needed to go. It, there was a clear plan to restart what those countries were. And this was in the bulwark of the early stages of the Cold War. What happened in Iraq was a, the Bush administration took us in. There was no coherent plan uh, for Iraq. There was no coherent plan for Afghanistan. And the generals that were in charge, like there was in the early days of the Germany and Japan, They didn't have complete autonomy. It was like the the military did their thing, State Department. There was no clear chain of command, and there was no clear strategy what we were trying to do. So I think both Republicans and Democrats misinterpret what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, he also says we need a new, rational American foreign policy informed by the best minds supported by both parties as well as – as well as by our close allies. Now, my question is, who is advising Donald Trump? Now, he mentioned there's a couple guys that he has, but none of these people are known as foreign policy strategists, big doctrinal strategies as it relates to foreign policy. So my question, who would he pick as Secretary of Defense? Who would he choose as Secretary of State, as National Security Advisors? his director of national intelligence, a CIA director. Who are these individuals that he's picking? So far, I haven't heard one really, one general or former general, I know that's hard for the the active duty forces, step up and say, this isn't going to work. I mean, Robert Gates, the former Secretary of Defense under uh, George Bush and Barack Obama said, the statements that Donald Trump made on the campaign trail is just rhetoric. It's just not going to happen, and there's we can't do what he says he's going to do. Even General Michael Flynn—excuse me, Michael Hayden spoke out. He's retired. He was the director of the NSA under George Bush and CIA. He spoke out at some of the pronouncements of uh, Barack Obama. So my question is, who is he listening to? Because in the speech— he degraded the foreign policy establishment, especially those at the think tanks, just like Barack Obama has. But he really re- criticized these people. As, uh, these are the same people that caused these problems in the uh, where we're at now. So who are these individuals that he's listening to? That needs to be said. And what allies would he listen to as well? As well? Because our closest allies really don't like a Donald Trump foreign policy, as if we get to that point. Now, he gets into his plan. First, he said, we need a long-term plan to help spread, help the, excuse me, to, to, ah, we need a long-term plan to halt the spread and reach of radical Islam. Now, he talks about the cont- containing the spread of radical, but it must be a major foreign policy goal of the United States. Now, he did say this, if this is where we're going to be working for, in this, we're going to be working very closely with our allies in the Muslim world, all of which are at rat, risk from radical Islamic violence. But in that breadth, how are you going to do that? What is your strategy working with these countries? Because you already said they need to do their, free, uh, do their fair share. So what would you do differently? How would you counter, counter Iranian aggression in this area? And you also stated, you, know, you also stated, we should work together with any nation in the region that is threatened by the rise of radical Islam. But this has to be a two-way street. They must also be good to us and remember us and all we are doing for them. What does it mean by good to us? What did you want them to do? Because they're on the front lines. I mean, we, I have my issues with Saudi Arabia and a lot of these countries since I've served there. And I see the duplicitous nature in their dealings. But how would you do differently? you got to remember that ISIS is involved in the Sinai. Egypt is heavily involved in that area. you got Saudi Arabia and um, Yemen. Iraq is about to implode, and the vice president is there now. So what, are you, what was your strategy? Because you've got to deal with Syria. He didn't mention that. What are we going to do? If you're going to defeat radical Islam and you're going to defeat ISIS, what replaces ISIS? Now, in that same breath, when he talks about ISIS, and then there is ISIS, I have a simple message for them. Their days are numbered. I won't tell them where. I won't tell them how. We must, as a nation, be more unpredictable. But they are going to be gone and soon. The question is, Republicans repeatedly have said that. Democrats have said we've got to defeat ISIS. Nobody has talked about what replaces ISIS. You've got Syria, backed by Russia and Iran. They're going after the moderate um, rebels that we financed and wasted hundreds of million dollars and only got a few Syrian rebels trained. Aleppo, one of the largest cities in Syria, is about ready to fall. So then what? If we defeat ISIS, what replaces ISIS? Are we going to allow the al-Nusra Front, which is an uh, al-Qaeda-based group, take over and fill the vacuum? What are we going to do about ISIS in northern Iraq? I mean, they, everybody talks about an Arabic army. Who's that Arabic army? They've never coordinated anything in the past. So how are they going to do that now? Even now, the President Obama's having a hard time bringing the Arabs on board. So what would Trump do differently? And we got to get out of this. We're going to go after ISIS, We're going to defeat them. That's, that's great on the campaign trail. But how is this going to work? What would you do um what was your strategy for the region, and do we keep Assad in power? That's part of the mix, so nobody knows and this these broad statements i mean that's great to sound tough, but you got to put that into action. He also mentions in one of his points first plan is we have to rebuild our military and our in our economy now he did talk about the sharp decline in the U.S. military. Now, he stated, we will spend what we need to rebuild our military. It is the cheapest investment we can make. We will develop, build, and purchase the best equipment known to mankind. Our military dominance must be unquestioned. How does he plan to rebuild the military? What is his strategy? Where does he see the military go? What weapon systems would he cancel? What weapon systems does he say we need? Does he deal with personnel? Do we need to build up, you know, add more troops to the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines? He doesn't really say what direction he would go on that. Now, he also stated, but we will look for savings and spend our money wisely. In this time of mounting debt, not $1 can be wasted. Well, how is he going to get that get through that? Everybody says they're going to reduce the spending in the, the Department of Defense, but he has to remember there's 535 members of Congress, each with a vote, and each has the um, defense contractors, weapons systems built in their states or district. How is he going to get that through Congress, and what is he planning for the military? He also goes in, we are also going to have to change our trade, immigration, and economic policy to make our country strong again and to put – Americans first again, this will this will ensure that our own workers right here in America get the jobs and higher pay that will grow our tax um, revenue and increase our economic might as a nation. Now, his big thing is trade. He's totally against NAFTA, Trans-Pacific Partnership, TTP. There's the other one, the European trade agreement that Barack Obama, when he went to Europe last week, was trying to— uh, push through. The question is he's totally against these things, but and he mentions that manufacturing jobs have fled the country. The problem is that when he mentions these states, the industrial heartland, the rust belt, New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Illinois, you got the California, New Jersey, all these states are listed as one of the as the worst states to run, to run a business. He never mentions Small business. More small businesses by Gallup News and by the Brookings Institute, which is the liberal progressive think tank, have stated there's more small businesses leaving the economy than coming in. That's a problem. If more small businesses leave the economy, that's 60% of all jobs in America are a small business. Most of innovation comes with small business. Small businesses are getting killed in this economy. And we just... As I reported earlier, the gross domestic product for the first quarter of this year is only 0.5%. So we will be under 3% this year. It really may make a a dramatic increase is the only way to get it over that. And President Obama will um, steward the economy with the only president in history not to have over 3% growth. So how would he do things differently? What about the business Community. What about Dodd-Frank, the Affordable Care Act? All these things go into the, um, the economy. Now, he also mentions this. A great country also take care of its warriors. Our commitment to them is absolute. A Trump administration will give our servicemen and women the best equipment and support in the world when they serve and the best care in the world when they return as veterans to civilian life. Now, everybody talks about veterans issue in the election. This crisis with the VA has been going on since 2014. The only time Donald Trump talked about it when he started to run for president. And he did a a rally where it found out that a lot of money he said it was going to go to veterans or never really made it. So, and then it goes back to Donald Trump's never served. He had four deferments for Vietnam. And I believe they were for bone spurs. He has two sons who are eligible to serve in the military. They're not serving. So, you got to put that in perspective from there. Now, finally, he said we must develop a foreign policy based on American interest. Businesses do not succeed when they lose sight of their core interest, and neither do countries. But any if the way he talks about it, the way our allies interpret it, and the way I interpret it, if he decides to pull back, what decision is he going to make about pulling out of these alliances if they don't, Pay their fair share with, on on the defense spending. What 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 is that demarcation line that he would pull us out of this alliance? How would other countries respond to this? These are something that need to be asked. Then he goes. Um, then he talks about our foreign policy goals must be based on America's core national security interests, and the following will be my priorities. He stated, "We will no longer surrender this country or its people." to the false song of globalism. The nation state remains to the true foundation for happiness and harmony. I am skeptical of international unions that tie us up and bring America down and will never enter into any agreement that reduces our ability to control our own affairs. Which one of these international unions that he doesn't like? NATO, our our treaties, our trade agreements, our um, treaties with um, our Asian allies, which one is he talking about? Now, he states again, in the Middle East, our goals must be to defend terrorists, excuse me, to defeat terrorists and promote regional stability, not radical change. We need to be clear-sighted about the groups that, we will, that will never be anything other than our enemies. How are you going to promote regional stability if, you pull, if you're disengaged from the region? What, would, what do you mean by regional stability and how would you accomplish that? And he continues to state, we desire to live peacefully and in friendship with Russia and China. We have serious differences with these two nations, and we must regard them with open eyes. But we are not bound to be adversaries. We should see common ground based on shared interests. Russia, for instance, has also seen the horror of Islamic terrorism. Now, their terrorism, they have seen the horrors of it, but it's also different than what the United States face. A lot of it is self-inflicted. They have a big, sizable um, Muslim population in their former Central Asian republics that were used to be former Soviet Union. Look what they did in Chechnya and some other of these places. So it's got to be tempered with a grain of salt. Also, he never mentions Russia aggression into Ukraine, Crimea, never mentions Russia into Syria. But let's just go with um, Ukraine and Crimea. Russian forces have gone in. But what about the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, um, Lithuania? They're part of NATO. Does the United States pull out? What if Russia goes into those countries? Are we giving them a free ride to go into there? So he never mentions this. He also never mentions uh, China in the South China Sea. Now, he does state this. I believe an easing of tensions and improved relations with Russia from a position of strength is possible. Common sense says this cycle of hostility must end. Some says the Russians won't be reasonable. I intend to find out. If we can't make a good deal for America, then we will quickly walk away from the table. Now, what does it mean a good deal for America? Now, the Eastern European countries, they remember... That the United States backed him. They remember the Western powers backed him and then turned their back on him. So what does he mean by a good deal of And what if we do walk away from the table? Is he going to allow Russia to have a sphere of influence in um, Eastern Europe and to the Baltics, threatening those countries? That's against stability. So what does he plan to do? And how would an Eastern European or how would Eastern Europe look at a Trump presidency? Now, he also goes into China, and he states, "...fixing our relations with China is another important step towards a prosperous century. China respects strength, and by letting them take advantage of us economically, we have lost all of their respect. We have a massive trade deficit with China, a deficit we must find a way quickly to balance. A strong, strong, and smart America is an America that will find a better friend in China." We can both benefit or we can both go our separate ways. Now, what does he plan to do with China? I mean, what does he do economically with China? Does he give them more leeway in East Asia? What about our our Asian allies? What about China in the South China Sea? Vietnam, Philippines, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, all have trouble with the resurgent China exerting itself because they're thinking we're pulling back. Does he let them have a free reign? What does he plan to do? Now, he also states, After I am elected president, I will call for a summit with our NATO allies and a separate summit with our Asian allies. In these summits, we will not only discuss a rebalancing of financial commitments, but take a fresh look at how we can adopt new strategies for tackling our common challenges. This, I mean, this is kind of worrisome. What does he mean? How does he want to approach this? Because to our allies, they look at America as that bulwark against the enemies of freedom. And whoever becomes president has always been the, um, what do you call it, Um, the leader of the free world. How does Donald Trump plan to lead? Does he want to disengage from these areas? He's never addressed that. He's left it so ambiguous because he has no expertise in foreign affairs. And he states this. I will not hesitate to deploy military force when there is no alternative. But if America fights, it must fight to win. I will never send our finest into battle unless necessary, and and will only do so if we have a plan for victory. I mean, that's great when he states this, but I would have a troubled... Well, here's a a candidate that's going to run for president, which he is, going to be commander-in-chief. When he was 20 years old, he had four deferments from Vietnam. And Vietnam was popular at the early stages. This is when 1966. So he got out of the Vietnam War. He has, um, what do you call it? He has two sons who are are eligible to serve. They're not going to serve, but he's going to send somebody else's son into battle. Of a problem with that. Now, he does say this as it relates to military uh, use of military force. Although not in government service, I was totally against the war in Iraq, saying for many years that it would destabilize the Middle East. Sadly, I was correct, and the biggest beneficiary was Iran. The problem with that, prior to us going in, about a year after 9 11, he was on a Howard Stern radio interview. And Howard Stern, do you support the war in Iraq? He goes, yeah, I guess I do. And there's no record of him stating what he just said, that he was totally against the war in Iraq and it would destabilize the Middle East. After the war was going badly, that's when he focused on it. But he never said, he focused more on the economic cost, not destabilizing the Middle East. This was after (coughs) we had gone into Iraq. So, Rhetoric is not the same as reality. And he goes again, these are the goals as president. Americans must know that we are putting the American people first again. On trade, immigration, foreign policy, the jobs, incomes, and security of America will always be my first priority. He states, NAFTA, again going back to trade, as an example, has been a total disaster for the U.S. and has emptied our states of our manufacturing and our jobs. Never again. Only the reverse will happen. We will keep our jobs and bring in new ones. There will be consequences for companies that leave the U.S. only to exploit it later. Now, fact checkers have stated there's been a small impact on jobs relating to NAFTA. But he keeps reiterating we have to make America great again. But going back to manufacturing jobs. Now, I know I've been kind of floating around all over the place on this. But this is where Donald Trump has gone in the speech. He was talking about this, then he's over on this. But as it comes back to manufacturing jobs, how would he punish these companies? The, the, um, the, 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 um, our tax reform, which everybody says we need to do, really hampers American business as it relates to its global competitors. When he talk about manufacturers, the biggest manufacturing um, states, the industrial heartland, has seen They're like the worst states to run a business. As a small business owner, I can see the problems, especially with Obamacare and the huge regulatory burden. It's one thing to say this because it plays to his base voters, just like on Bernie Sanders plays to his voters. But if anybody has run a business, you realize that our own policy really hurts American jobs. So how does he plan on doing this? And how does he plan on implementing this? Now, Trump de- Donald Trump demonstrates an ability to present an isolationist American first version. And it's not more what has been the American uh, foreign policy since Truman all the way to Bush Jr. Now, we are, we, we've definitely got a fundamental election happening in November of this year. What direction do you see American foreign policy? Are we should be more engaged or disengaged? If we disengage, we should be prepared for the consequences. If we are engaged, how do you plan on engaging with the world and our allies? Now, General James Mattis, who is former uh, commander of U.S. Central Command, who oversaw all military operations in the Middle East region, stated, or at least mentioned, whoever the next president, Democrat or Republican, will be tested from day one and right now the world is a mess so the question i would ask and should be challenging these candidates what would you do let's not get rhetoric let's have a coherent vision and so far with this speech by donald trump he has n- the only vision he's laid out is america will come first but he put together an incoherent and rambling strategy of where he sees the united states and never articulated What role does he see the United States in world affairs beyond America first? And I've talked to people around the world. And a strong America means a safe and stable world. A disengaged America means chaos around the world. Again, let me know what you think about these topics. I'm going to try to challenge all the leaders. When Hillary Hillary Clinton does her foreign policy address, I'll I'll critique it from her. If you get the opportunity, go to Ubaldi Reports on my website. Go to iTunes and Stitcher. Sign up for iTunes. I mean, sign up for Ubaldi Reports. It's free. Let me know what you think. If you get the chance, go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon. I have a bestseller book called The New Business Brigade: Why Businesses Need to Hire Veterans in the Untapped Resource They Represent. Again, let's challenge our elected officials because if we don't then we get the government we deserve because we didn't take part. Again, let me know what you think. Let your friends know. Keep listening to Ubaldi Reports. And we'll, we'll keep doing this and we'll talk to you next time. Have a great time and keep listening to Ubaldi Reports.